I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and while you're turning there, let me just express my thanks for you being here and uh, coming to the conference. It's always uh, a great time for us as a church to be able to minister to you and, and gather with you, and so thank you for coming to be here, and if there's anything we can do to help you while you're here, uh, please don't hesitate to ask. If we can, we will. If we can't, we'll tell you, all right? But we love to uh, do what we can, and we're grateful for you uh, being here this morning. Our theme is uh, focused and faithful, and so we hope over the uh, next day and a half, you'll get some valuable information. We, uh, we for years, were the Mid-America Conference on Preaching. We changed to E3 uh, just because after 25 years or so, uh, we kept expanding the theme so that preaching was always like a sub-theme and not really the main theme, so we switched it, but we always keep it as a sub-theme usually and uh, because we do think that that the health of uh, churches is dependent on the faithful and effective ministry of God's Word. And so uh, our goal is to encourage and equip and engage. Those are the three E's, and, and we hope uh, there'll be a good balance of those. In the general sessions, uh, we like to just open the word and, and proclaim it and, and have our hearts strengthened, we hope, by that. You know, when you talk uh, focused and faithful, I think if we think about it, it's, uh, at least I think this way, I'll let you know, you can, you can decide if I'm thinking correctly on it. Uh, I believe you can be focused, but not faithful. Right, I mean, you, you focus isn't a uniquely biblical concept that only we talk about. You can pick up a million business books or productivity books about being focused and adding focus and having focus. And I would suggest there's a lot of ministries that uh, that bear uh, do genuinely bear some good fruit and have an appearance of ministry success primarily because they're focused, right? Because here's, here's a, a principle from God's word. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. That's Proverbs 21.5. And that actually applies inside of creation, right? The basic point is, more often than not, if you plan diligently, it will be productive and effective. And Lots of ministries that probably we wouldn't be really, uh, I, I'll just say it my way, I would not be a fan of, I would not be endorsing, are very diligent at planning and executing those plans and therefore are productive at some level. And because God honors his word, even if folks aren't, using it completely faithfully, God blesses his word anyway, right? He can use a prophet like Balaam. So God will bless his word. So sometimes there is good fruit that comes, but then I said apparent ministry success because the chapter before ours talks about building with wood, hay, and stubble that will be examined and won't pass the test, right? Because it might look like it's the greatest thing going, and, and, and our culture thrives on that. If anything seems to be successful, then it's worthy of imitating, right? So, so a church takes off and grows. It must be the hand of God endorsing that ministry, and that's a false conclusion. Right? It, it could be just the plans of the diligent are leading surely to advantage and what's being accomplished might not pass the test at the end. Right? You could be focused, but not be faithful. I think that is a real possibility. I think it's probably, this is where I'll start pulling air quotes art, right? It's possible to be faithful and not focused if 
your definition of faithful ministry emphasizes spirituality more than responsibility, right? Uh, a pastor could have a wonderful quiet time and not be diligent studying to prepare his sermons, right? He might be a genuinely good-hearted spiritual man who's not actually fulfilling the tasks that he's been given. He's maybe distracted into other things or, or maybe just undisciplined in it, right? It's possible to have the appearance of faithfulness and lack the focus that we need, right? So, so those two words are important words that I hope merit a conference because you decide to come to it. And we decided to try and put it on, right? That, that actually we want to have the combination of both focused and faithful, right? That we want to actually uh, be faithful to the Lord and focused in on what he wants us to do as we ought to. And I would like to this morning uh, zero in on what I think is a key to having them both, and that is a God-centered sense of accountability. A God-centered sense of accountability. I'd like to ask you to follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required in or of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I'm assuming you're, you have a certain familiarity with the tensions at Corinth. In the, the first four chapters of the book, Paul is addressing those. He starts right after the, the introductory prayer report, Thanksgiving report, to talk about the disunity that's there, the divisions, the quarrels, and he's been moving through that up to this point. That, that is sort of summarized or illustrated by the statements in chapter one that say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. But by the time you come to chapter three, uh, and I only mean this literarily, right? Cephas and Christ have sort of dropped off. He's actually talking about Paul and Apollos all the way through chapter three. Then look at, I stop reading verse five, but look at verse six. Now, these things, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So it seems like the real rub of the tension at Corinth was, and sort of reading through what's said there, is a kind of understanding of both the message and the ministry that was being influenced by the philosophies of the Greek culture. Right? They wanted a sophisticated gospel and an eloquent ministry, and Paul was like, not that. I don't think Apollos was in favor of them using his name, but he was much more like that. Right? We know from Acts, he was a man who was eloquent in the scriptures, and he was powerful in his, in his proclamation of it. And so you have Apollos, whose personal ministry appealed more to them than Paul's, and so Paul has been moving step by step to show that their assessment of things is not the accurate one. It's, it's actually, he describes it in early part of chapter three as being fleshly. They're thinking like mere men. And so he starts laying out a proper view of both ministry and men and focuses on them being servants. Right? He says in chapter three, who are Paul? Who are apostle? Only servants through whom you believed. Right? It's not the servants that matter. It's the master that matters. Okay. Now, 
Most of us recognize this tension if you're in pastoral ministry, right? Is that if you really hit that note strongly, then it's possible that somebody could come to the wrong conclusion that you have no authority. You're just a servant, right? You're saying you're a servant. He's the master. So who are you to tell us what to do? Who are you to lead or direct? And, and, and we, we would possibly justify that if we didn't keep reading in 1 Corinthians, because by the time you come to chapter 4 and verse 14 and following, Paul is making it really clear that he has authority. And he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to challenge those among you who are puffed up and will know not just the words, but the power of it. Right, So Paul doesn't want to give away his responsibility as a servant of God. So what the first part of chapter 4 actually does is, is pick up that idea of that we're just servants, but then it answers the question, but servants of whom? Are we just the servant of whoever wants to tell us to do something? Or actually, we are the servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And that truth, I think, is a really important one when we think about the topic that we have in this conference, because our true focus must be on the will of our master, and the measure of our faithfulness is not the standard of the people we serve, really. It's the standard of the master who has if I could put it this way, commissioned us for a task, right? So he's wanting to get them to think clearly about it. Being a servant doesn't mean that they would do whatever the people at Corinth want them to do. Paul's reaffirming the role of a servant, but confronting their wrong thinking about who is being served. And so we need to understand that. So he starts by first part of the chapter with two principles in verses one and two. And, and the first in verse one is a principle, I think, about the nature of Christian ministry or the nature of, of our ministry. Notice he says, let a man regard us. What he's doing there, I think, is actually challenging their thinking. He's saying something like this. Here's how you ought to think about us, Right? Instead of the way you're currently thinking, this is the way you ought to think about us. And then he describes the nature of it as a position, servants of Christ. And sometimes a little bit too much is made of the etymology of that term. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I was going to say, who's heard a sermon? I could say, who's preached a sermon like this? So don't, don't do it. Right, but it's huperetes. It means the under rower. It's the guy down in the bottom of the slave boat in the galley rowing it like that. And so the whole sermon becomes about us. We're just like we're just under rowers. Uh, the problem is the words used in the Gospels of people who are actually over the affairs of a master. Right? It's they're actually in charge of the administration of something. They're not just the bottom rung of it. That may have where it started, but just like all kinds of words that we use grow and are used in context, it's really just, it's emphasizing someone who has a position under authority. So in the Gospels, a, an owner had a servant who was over the other servants. That could be used this term. So it's simply acknowledging that the servant does so under authority. We are under Christ, but we are over responsibilities, right? We are under Christ, we're under his authority, but he's put us in his authority over responsibilities that we have to carry out. So it's not, it's not just that we're like at the bottom of the rung and everybody can tell us what to do. It's actually, no, those who serve in this capacity have been charged with certain responsibilities that they have an obligation to exercise on behalf of their master, right? So it's a servant position. And then another word that emphasizes, I think, the responsibility element as well, stewards 
of the mysteries of God. A steward, as you know, was someone who was entrusted with some, something and in, accountable to someone. Uh, you have parables where Jesus entrusts responsibility to people and leaves and comes back and expects an accounting of their stewardship. It'd be like, you know, we have folks from our church that have been sent out by our churches as missionaries and they own property here. So they actually give someone the authority to watch over that property. And, and we don't tend to use the word steward as much, but that's basically what they're doing. They're, they're a steward of someone else's property. They've been entrusted with that responsibility. And so Paul says that, that we should be thought of or regarded as stewards who've been entrusted with something. What's the something in verse one? It's the mysteries of God, right? And, and again, you probably know the word mystery as it's used in the New Testament isn't like our use of mystery novel where you're trying to figure out what's going on and something's hidden and that, but it's actually something that wasn't known and has been revealed. For instance, Ephesians chapter three, Paul talks about that Jew and Gentile would be joined into one body, was not known in previous generations, but has now been revealed through his apostles and prophets. So there was something not revealed who has not, which has now been revealed, and that's called the mystery. All right. So, so what Paul's saying here is that we're, it's not like we're, we have some esoteric insight to things that other people can't understand, but that actually we've been entrusted with the deposit of God's truth and we're stewards of that. We have an obligation to it that is rooted not just in that truth, but the one whose truth it is. It's the mysteries of God. Right? So, I think we, I hope we all think this, right? The, the most important test of our preaching is whether or not we are saying the thing that God said, right? Because we are to preach the word. So we're proclaiming something that has already been said. Right? We're not making stuff up. I mean, I'm, there's, you can, you can tell by listening to me, I'm not a terribly creative guy. So it might be just my sour grapes that I'm not a creative guy that, that is actually saying the goal in your preaching isn't creativity, right? Your, your goal is faithfulness to what God said. You're to communicate the word of God. What he's revealed is really the key to it. Hopefully you don't do it in a boring way, but I, I suppose I'd prefer you be boring than be unfaithful, right? But don't pick either, all right? Don't, don't those, that's an excluded middle, all right? So your chief responsibility is that you, we have been entrusted with a message about Christ. So when we think about the Christian ministry that Paul's talking about, we should see it as in a position of service, and, and that is we're under authority with responsibility, and that responsibility is stewardship of the revelation of God. And that's how we should think about ourselves in ministry. Then in verse 2, he gives us the standard for it. And, and that is, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. And I think that required, really sort of the flavor of the language is, is what is sought in stewards. Think about it this way. Like, let's say you were going to, you got an overseas assignment and you were going to be gone for 12 months and you were looking for somebody to be the steward of, of your property and resources. What would you look for, right? Would, would you find the person whose house is in disarray? <laughs> would you find the person who's up to their eyeballs in debt, right? Would you find the person who, who looks like they're in a constant uh, whirlwind of chaos and confusion? No, you'd, you'd actually look for the person who's trustworthy. They, what they have received 
they've exercised good stewardship over. They've been faithful in little, so you want them to take over something more. That's, that's what's looked for. And, and I take a moment just to tease that out because sometimes, uh, sometimes that's not what we're looking for. Right? We're looking for the dynamic personality. We're looking for the visionary. We're looking for the things that really are much more surfacey. And, and that's not where God puts the emphasis, right? He's putting the emphasis on the person who's trustworthy. They make and keep commitments, right? They fulfill the tasks that they've been given. They carry them out. That's what we should be looking for. And, and, and it would clearly mean fidelity to the gospel, I think, in both creed and conduct. That is, we know from the way, uh, for instance, Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles that there is behavior that is not consistent with sound doctrine, right? So doc- doctrine biblically doesn't just reside between our ears. It actually has to be life-transforming, and faithfulness shows up both in, in our creed and in our life, right? They need to be a trustworthy person, and that's why Paul will say for Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your teaching, right? And, and again, at times we, we live in a, a modern era where if somebody's a dynamic leader or a dynamic communicator and they demonstrate unfaithfulness in their life, people are really quick to go, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. They need to use their gifts or they need to whatever. And, and at, at the bare minimum, without getting into the whole conversation of it, right, at the bare minimum, like, Proving faithfulness again would be more important than we need their gifts, right? I mean, it would, it would seem that we get it backward and we think God needs our help rather than God wants our obedience and trustworthiness. So, so here's, here's what Paul does. He starts with those principles because he actually hasn't gotten to his point yet. And I'm just going to say this subtly because lots of times this unit is preached as if it's about be faithful. And that's actually not what it's about, right? It's, it's actually laying a groundwork because the, really the main imperative in this actually doesn't come until verse 5 where he says, do not go on passing judgment, right? The problem will we're going to see in a moment is that there was a wrong kind of judging that was happening. And what Paul does in the first two verses is actually try to sort of clear the the level so that they would know what the right standard of judgment is and who's responsible for the judging. And then he's going to move into the rest of it. So that leads me to to have us look at verses three and four, because this is the problem at Corinth that he wants to uh, uh, deal with, right? It's clear, it seems clear that Paul has been very patiently, carefully making his case to lay out the groundwork to eventually confront the people who are puffed up at Corinth, right? Right after this passage, he starts tightening it up. he's, He's wanting to deal with the arrogance that's there in the way they're carrying themselves out. And he actually describes them as that in verse 18. Look at 418. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come. All right, so he actually is coming to the issue that's really at stake by their rejection of Paul. They are putting themselves at risk of turning away from the gospel because Paul was a servant of Christ and a steward of God's mysteries. So you're making a serious error if you reject what he has showed you about how to do ministry, chapter two, verses one through five, and what the message is, chapter one, message of the cross of Christ. So, so it's a big issue. 
but he's been laying layer upon layer, layer to get to his ultimate confrontation of them. One element of that is the fact that there is this false assessment of him that's happening and a false assessment of Apollos, right? More positively toward Apollos, more negatively toward Paul. I look what he says in verse three, because he emphasizes first the insignificance of human examination. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. You see what Paul does there? He makes a really a sort of a shocking, very bold statement about the relative value of human evaluations. And when I say relative, he basically is saying it doesn't matter. Right? Notice he starts with their assessment. To me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Right? It, I put it in, in, in sort of like contemporary colloquialism. It really doesn't matter if I'm judged by you. It, it, your, your evaluation of my ministry weighs very little on the scale of important things in my life. Right, that, that's a pretty, it's a pretty bold thing to say, right? Your assessment of me doesn't really matter. And then look at, he extends it out to all human courts or any Human day, I think, is the, the original language of it. I think most take it as being almost like we talk about have your day in court. I mean, it's a day of evaluation. He says, and, and, and it may be, it may be like he's softening the boldness of that first statement. Your judgment of me doesn't matter, but no one's human judgment of me matters. Right? I don't, that's not ultimately where the standard of evaluation, the bar that I'm going to stand before is. It's not in a human court. And then he takes it one step farther and he says, I don't even examine myself. Okay. And, and, and here the issue would be final judgment on myself. Right? Because he's not saying he never reflects on his life because he has a couple of times says, I have a good conscience about this. The, the spirit can testify with my conscience. So it's not as if he has an unawareness of where he stands. What he's saying is his own assessment doesn't settle it, right? So think about the three steps there, right? It's a insignificance of human examination. The Corinthians, all human judgment, even my own judgment. Those are not the things that are dispositive for his ministry. It is not, it is not here arrogance or radical independence which is governing him, right? It's not, it's not like, I don't care about you and I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to do what I want. Otherwise, he's not, he's not saying my apologies to Sinatra. He's not saying I did it my way. Right? I don't care what anybody else says. I, I did it my way. No, he's saying it's not even that that's the answer. Right? He, he isn't looking at it that way. What this is, I think, is a clear recognition that human appraisal doesn't really matter compared to God's. Right? And we... I think probably everybody in this room at least pays lip service to that. Right? We'd say, oh, it's God, it's God's opinion of things that matters. And, and, and sometimes we rightly say, you know, there are people that nobody in this world really even knows about who are serving God faithfully that, that have the approval of God and, and we shouldn't be so caught up in, in all the human accolades. And we're right about that. But here's the test for us is when we're actually planning our days, pursuing our ministry, whose eye matters most to us? Right? Are we doing things to be seen of men? To keep people happy? 
right? We're, we're wanting approval in our day, building a platform, right? Finding ways to get our name out there. I mean, what we're, what we're doing at that point is we're actually elevating the appraisal of people, potentially elevating the appraisal of people above the appraisal of God if it in any way threatens our faithfulness or distracts our focus, right? We're running around, keeping people happy, not doing the tasks that we have responsibility for means that we're more worried about their assessment than we are God's. And that's the danger that can come in it. Now, it almost, verse 4, seems as if, the first part of verse 4, he, he wants to make sure they don't draw wrong conclusion. Uh, what he says in verse 4, I do not even examine myself. He comes back with a, a truth about the inconclusiveness of self-examination. Look what he says in verse 4. For I am not conscious of I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet I am not by this acquitted. So, because you can you can get the deal, right? Paul goes, "What you think doesn't matter. Fact, what any human court says doesn't matter. To me, I don't even examine myself." And it's like, but I don't know anything against myself, right? He's not using that to try and say so I can just do whatever I want to do. He's going, no, no, no. I'm not aware of anything that I'm doing wrong, right? I'm conscious of nothing against myself. He's, he's arguing that he has a good conscience, but here's an important truth for us to make certain we think about. A good conscience is good, but it's not ultimate. Because look what he says, I am not by this acquitted, right? He says, I don't, I don't, my conscience does not bear testimony against me in anything. And we'd go, awesome. And we ought to go, awesome. But then we ought to go, but your conscience actually isn't the judge. A good conscience is a good conscience, but you're not acquitted by a good conscience because it's possible, it's possible for your conscience to be ill-informed. It's possible for your conscience to be uh, malfunctioning in some way because of the deceitfulness of sin, which hardens the heart, right? Having a good conscience is good, but not ultimate. And, and we need to recognize that, okay? And that, that is contra the view that is perpetuated a lot in our day, where if your conscience is good and you have a good motive, if your conscience is clear and you have good motives, then you're, everything's A-okay. And that's, that's actually shifting the authority away from the word of God into us. And, and that's not sufficient. I remember year, years, this would be years ago, I was teaching a 12th grade Bible class and I'd been out to lunch with a guy who was another youth pastor in the area and, and we walked into the Bible class and apparently somebody had preached something in chapel that had them all jazzed up in the Bible classes about, I think it was about music, but I don't, I don't remember for sure. But they're arguing with each other and they start going, so what do you guys think? And this, you know, friend of mine, uh, is in the class, and he goes to the kid, he goes, well, have you, have you prayed about it? Yes. Your conscience bother you? No. Well, then don't worry about it. And I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> like, you just walk into my Bible class with kids from my youth group, and you just said that. And I go, hey, it's a timeout, timeout. So then I had to correct, I mean, I went right after it with him, because I'm like, that's just wrong. Right? You could have prayed about it. And your conscience might not be bothering you. And you're not acquitted by that. Because right? that's not the ultimate standard. There is a standard set for us. Remember those principles at the beginning? 
right? My conscience isn't the Lord. The Lord is the Lord. He's the one who sets the right and wrong. He's the one that declares it. And my responsibility is to move in line with him, not let my conscience be the arbiter of everything. It's not unimportant. And in fact, if I have a problem in my conscience, I'm supposed to turn and address it. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I'm just saying when, when you and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus isn't going to pull out your conscience and make it the final assessment tool. So, so Paul says, I don't know anything against myself, but I'm not acquitted by that. Because then he moves to the importance of the Lord's examination at the end of verse 4. The one who examines me is the Lord. A servant is accountable to his master, and a steward is accountable to the owner, right? And so for Paul, he's making it clear, the Lord and his examination are the judge is the judgment that all other judgments are relative to. It's a small thing, how you examine me, compared to the Lord's examination. All other human courts are insignificant compared to the Lord's judgment. My own self-examination and self-appraisal doesn't ultimately matter compared to the Lord's judgment. Now, I don't think Paul was like an antisocial guy who said, so I really would like you to judge me badly. Right? I mean, I think Paul wanted a good relationship with them. He, he actually wanted them to affirm his ministry because affirming his ministry would be mean they're lining up the right way. But he wasn't going to go after their approval in any way that would surrender his obedience to Christ. Because Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I seek to please men, then I am not the servant of Christ. Right? He knew who, whomever you are ultimately trying to please has become your master. Whoever's pleasure has the place of ultimacy in your life is actually your master. So you can't live for the pleasure of people you have to live for the pleasure of God and pursue it in that way. And that's why Paul was focused on it in that regard. He recognized that, that God's evaluation of him mattered most. Now, let me quickly you know, do the thing we almost have become you know, obsessed with in our days to throw the caveats in, okay? Uh, Paul is not talking about his ultimate salvation. He's talking about his service, right? He's not thinking, I really need to keep after this so that someday the Lord will say, hey, you're good enough to get into heaven here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about he's a servant of Christ. So that means he already has a relationship with God through Christ. He understands the gospel. He's not off on justification here. Can, can, we can grant that, right? Paul understands justification and his understanding of justification does not eliminate the assessment of service, right? He just said in chapter three that there will be an examination of how we've built on the foundation of Christ, whether it's been with gold, silver, or precious stones or with wood, hay, and stubble. So Paul clearly doesn't mean, hey, if you're justified, God's never going to evaluate anything about your life. You just need to stop worrying about that and, and soak yourself in grace because grace makes it all irrelevant. That is not the Bible. Right? It's not God's word to make us careless about our service for him. We should be conscientious and committed to doing the will of our master so that we prove to be, end up as the assessment of our life, faithful servants. 
right? Trustworthy, found trustworthy because we did the thing that God gave us to do. And, and certainly we need to be soaked in the concept of imputed righteousness and justification and grace so that we never start to think we are earning God's favor by our service. We're not, right? It's not like you, you are banking good points so that then God will bless you. That's not the point at all. The point is God has put something in your hands to do for him. Should you do it? Should you do it well? Should you do it faithfully? Aren't those the appropriate response to the grace of God that he's poured out on us? Shouldn't it be if we think about the love of Christ displayed in his death for us, as Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 5, when we think about that, the love of Christ constrains us, having concluded, right? We're thinking about it, having concluded that if he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died. It is the meditation on the work of Christ on our behalf at the cross captures our heart because we come to the conclusion that if he died for me, then I ought to live for him, not for myself, right? It becomes the motivation for our faithfulness. And, and we, sh- we can't abandon that. There are people who, who I think possibly are rightly motivated to defend the gospel of grace and the imputed righteousness of Christ. And I stand right there with them. Yes, preach it, preach it, preach it. But then all of a sudden they go, so God doesn't really assess your life. He never sees anything that's happening in your life. He doesn't really have an evaluation of your ministry coming. You can just, you know, just live in the free grace of it all. That's a, it's a non sequitur that is also unbiblical, right? It, it doesn't make sense logically and it is not true. God wants us to be faithful. So we should aspire to that label of trustworthy or faithful because of what's been imparted to us and our motivation to it must be God-centered. Then he comes to the prohibition in verse five. They have a responsibility. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. And this is one of those situations where probably the original language could warrant stop passing judgment. They're already doing it. And the way he sets up the grammar is, is telling them to stop doing something that they're currently doing because they're engaged in it. And the negative is put in a place of emphasis here. So there was this judgment of God's servants that was exceeding what God would permit. So he says, stop doing it. Stop doing it, all right? And and again, we need to make sure we think about judgment rightly. Right, and because one of the things that's important to us to realize, he says right here, stop passing judgment. And in the next chapter, he tells them to judge the so-called brother who's living as an unbeliever. And then chapter six, he says, aren't there men in your assembly who could sit down in judgment to decide the case between other believers? Right, so... So verse five is not a universal prohibition against judging. It would be a way of, I think, parsing out what Jesus says that we have to judge righteous judgment. And and the thing he's specifically after is a kind of judgment they must not be engaged in. So I don't have time to unpack it all, but I think it would be something like this, that within the circle Right? Of Christ's servants, you don't do this. Because ch- chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he's calling people uh, Satan's servants who appear as angels of light. So that sounds like he's doing some judging there. 
right? So, so the context is, right, Paul and Apollos are actually servants of Christ, stewards of God's mysteries. You shouldn't be passing judgment on those kinds of servants, right? They're inside the boundary of gospel fidelity. They are inside the boundaries that God himself has established. Inside of there, you need to back off this. And if you look at the language, it, it, it probably narrows it to the motives of these servants. Look at down, uh, down in verse five, it says, uh, disclose the motives of men's hearts. Some of you have purposes or intentions. It's because it's, it's a word that's used probably most often in the New Testament about those types of things. Uh, will or purpose or intention, um, but it's whatever that is of the heart. So I think I don't think motives is a bad translation of it. Basically, the point would be you actually can't see into the hearts of God's servants, so you should be very careful about passing judgments on what's in their heart. And and I think. Um, I mean, I think our culture is gone haywire on that because everything, everybody thinks they're a mini psychologist who can tell the motives of why everybody does what they do because our culture has basically embraced selfishness. So whatever somebody does must be for selfish reasons. So they did something. So, well, their reason must be for some self-advantage. That's the culture we live in. I mean, I, I, I just... I try not to read much because I get just so irritated, right? You read anything about the government or politics and immediately the conversation is about whether or not they'll get elected again or not. And since it's all about whether or not they will gain or lose power, immediately everybody questions everything they do based on their motive to have or to get power. I mean, you just pick up your average article in our culture about a politician, and it's, it's almost within lines of whatever decision was made, someone is telling you the suspected reasons for why they did it. That's the culture we live in. And because we live in that culture, it makes its way right into the church. And so-and-so does this, and people are going, well, you know why they did that. You know, the pastor said this. Well, you know why he said that. Right? Things are not taken at, at, at face value because everybody's thinking that they can understand the human heart. Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know? Only the Lord can. That's why this text says, you know who's going to take care of this problem? Look what, look what verse 5 says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Why? He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. So he, he says there is going to be a judgment that comes from God and it's at an appointed time when the Lord comes. So we're not at that point yet. So we shouldn't engage in the assessment that has to be postponed till that time. And it will be accurate. I mean, God will bring to light the things that are hidden. He will disclose the intents of the heart. God knows those things. Right? So, so that has sort of a double edge to it, right? The one edge is to the people who are prone to be passing the wrong kind of judgment on people to say, hey, you don't really know. Remember? Two and three. Small thing to be judged of you or any human court. I don't even know anything against myself, but that doesn't equip me. Why? Because there's things deep in the heart that only God can assess, right? So, so I need to stop thinking I can tell what is happening in someone else's heart, right? Particularly when it comes to uh, what I'd say is... Uh, almost exclusively when it comes to those who are inside this circle of fidelity. Because I do think I have scriptural warrant for saying when somebody abandons the teachings of Christ, 
they're doing it for the wrong motive because the scriptures do that. Romans 16 and Philippians 3 say their God is their appetite, right? People turn away from God for the wrong reason. Whether they're serving God for the right reason or not, that's going to be God's job to deal with, right? I need to work on my own heart to make sure that I don't, but I need to be careful about it. So we need to leave others to this judgment. And frankly, we have to rest our case there too. There's coming a day when God is going to assess our ministry and we need to be comfortable leaving the ultimate assessment of our ministry to him. Right? Do what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. And, and then chapter 4, it says, we keep entrusting ourselves to the faithful creator. Right? We, if we believe the gospel, we should be able to live in a way that says, I'm going to let God do the assessment of my ministry. It may not seem significant. It may not meet with all kinds of applause and approval in this life, but Hebrews 6.10, he is not unjust so as to forget the labor of love that you've shown to his name in ministering to the saints and still ministering. Jesus knows. God has a record of it all, and you can leave it with him. And, and I think we should think about at least the corollary of Matthew chapter 6, where he says, don't practice your righteousness to be seen in men. Right? Then he says, the person who blows the trumpet to be seen praying says, they have their reward in full. The person who gives alms so that people will know that he's doing it, they have the reward in full. The person who fasts so they can be seen, they have the reward in full. But if you do those things without trying to attract the approval of people, but are doing them for God, then your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And that's, I think, at least a part of what's going on in chapter 3, because you know what a wood, hay, and stubble kind of approach to ministry would be? The one that tries to make a big name for yourself. The one that tries to have the approval of all kinds of people. The one that really has an eye to see what everybody thinks of you and that has more control than what God's assessment is, if what you really want is the approval of men, then you may find out, find out that you got your reward in full. So great, you had your name on a plaque. Whoopee! You had a list of things that you were a part of, and everybody knew you were somebody. Whoopee! Because that's going to be gone like that. What really matters is God's assessment. What, what will God have for you? And Paul was confident, I think, at least for him and Apollos, each man will have praise of God. And I think he would say that about all, to some degree, of God's servants who persevere faithfully, that they they have God working in them to want and work for what is pleasing to him. And so God will say, well done. That, that every desire for goodness will be fulfilled in them so that Jesus Christ will be glorified in them and them in him. It'll be well done. And, and honestly, I think every one of us, at least in our heart, would say, Hearing from Jesus, well done, is more important than any other voice you can think of. But you and I are also sinners still struggling with our inherent remnant of sin, whatever you want to call it. And that means that we constantly have to go, back, go to battle with this issue of approval 
from lesser judges than God. So we should fight, if I could, if I could put it this way, we must fight the false idea of a sovereign conscience. We should fight the celebrity culture that passes judgment on Christ's servants, elevating some and, and, and diminishing others. I mean, honestly, this could be like a whole nother sermon. I'm not going to preach it. But, but the I'm of mindset pervades contemporary American Christianity. Right? That, I mean, I, I mean, the first time I actually ever heard it fully, I would just, it would just, it was a jaw dropper. I was doing a church internship when I was a college student that was actually one of those internships where it was really profitable learning what not to do in ministry, right? And one of the guys, there was a guy who was on staff at the church who was from an orbit that was uh, different than mine. I'd ever grown up on. He was, he was actually a gigantic Jack Hiles fan, but this was like 1982 or whatever. It was before, I mean, it was, he shouldn't have been one then, but it was before all the scandals and everything, right? And I remember I'm talking, we're, the three of us, the inter, or four of us are there, and, and this guy is going on about Hiles, and he's going, he literally, this is what he said, Hiles can take those Jones boys to the hoop when it comes to preaching. That's the way he said it. He was basically comparing Jack Hiles to Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones III, and he was trying to show that, you know, his, he and literally goes, he could take those Jones boys to the hoop. And I'm saying like, like, is that what preaching has become? Like you, you got your superstar preacher who can, who can take other preachers to the hoop. But I'm telling you, you could, you could pull out Jack Hyle's name, bring the speech up to, up to speed. And there's a whole cluster of groupies that run around following celebrity preachers. I mean, I've, I've spoken in some of the conferences and you know, it's always sort of fun because they're like, I, they have no idea who I am. So I'm just standing there watching them all, wanting to get their selfies and have all their, you know, get them to sign everything. Because, and, and I was at one where during the COVID time and, and one of the big name speakers couldn't make it because it co- one couldn't. And there was like a, yeah. and then they announced the other one who couldn't make it. And it was, oh, it's like you could tell half the crowd was there because they wanted to hear that person. Right? We get really close to the I'm of mindset. And, 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 and it, it starts to infect the way we think about our own ministries, potentially. Is there anybody in our little group that says, I'm of Dave Dorn? <laughs> Claudia is. <laughs> so far, she's still with me. You know, standard joke in our house is... Uh, who, who's her second favorite preacher? Usually, what's well, right now? It's Alistair Begg. I mean, how do you, how do you compete with that? So she you know, Alistair Begg's her second favorite preacher, and I've never had the nerve to ask her who's number one. Right? <laughs> it's just like I'm not asking that question. I'm just going to live in my ignorance, my blissful ignorance, right? But but you know, that's it. Can be easy to get sucked into that, can it? To think that we have to be important. And then start to find ways to climb the ladder or to expand our influence or build our platform. Right? Some of that stuff may happen. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think you should go find a closet and preach away and be happy in there. But what's your heart? What's your heart? Because you could have a million followers and, and not be following Jesus. And those million followers won't matter a bit. So we need to kill it. We need to kill the fear of man that drives us away from the master's rightful rule over us and replaces the simple rule of one master with a thousand masters. You want to go crazy? Do that. Keep your eye on the one. So here's the bottom line for me. Your faithfulness will be focused if you have your eye on the day when you see your Savior, right? Keep that at the heart of it so that you want to be faithful and focused on the work that he has entrusted to you as a steward. Keep your eye there, your heart there. And by God's grace, we'll hear, well done.
because his grace sustains us through it all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. We know that you are not dependent on us. Uh, It's not as if you're served with human hands, as Acts 17 says. But you've given us this privilege to display your glory and grace by living a life transformed by your word and the work of Christ on our behalf. And I believe we're here today because we want to be faithful and we want to be focused. So please use the conference to help us, to encourage us, to equip us. May, may even, even the consideration of this text and the fact that if we're faithful to you, we'll receive praise from you be a refreshing word for some who might have come from a place where it's not just uh, not not just neutral, but possibly even sometimes difficult and and adversarial to serve faithfully. Lord, encourage them, lift them up, help them to remember your faithfulness to them, and help them model it. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.